He would have missed all that. He would have missed all that too. All gold. (laughs) Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Podcast. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hey everyone, you are listening to Living the Dream. How's it going, John? I'm well. How are you going, Dave? You sound a little bit like you've got a bit of a cold. Oh, yeah, it's winter. It's winter. winter in Brisbane. Yeah. It's worse. It, worse. Yeah. I'm, in Queensland, uh, Siberia. Suffering of a Brisbane river, of a Brisbane, of a Brisbane winter. Yeah, oh, it's tough. And like, and I'm obviously Dave. For those that listen to the show, you can follow me at Twitter on Twitter at with sober senses. John, what's your Twitter handle? At John Pacini. And we're pretty stoked today because we're joined by Paddy Gibson. Paddy, how's things? They're good. Thanks for having me on, pa- Paddy. How? What's your claim to fame? How do you like to be introduced? My claim to fame. Hmm. Um. I. I'm an activist. I'm a revolutionary socialist, I, I guess, first and foremost. Yeah, I'm in a group called Solidarity. I edit the magazine, co-edit the magazine. And um, I, for work, I work as an academic at an Indigenous research unit called Jambana part-time. Mm-hmm. And I'm also doing a PhD uh, in history. Brilliant. And, and so, yeah. And That's li- me. listeners might be aware that we did a fundraiser earlier this year to uh, raise cash so we could have some um, better facilities. And one of our listeners, John Passant, donated money and came with that. He could suggest someone for us to interview. And Paddy, you were the suggestion. So someone has literally paid money for us to speak to you. Look, that is pretty nice. <laughs> Thanks very much to John. Um, yeah, that's lovely. And I guess the reason that John wanted to speak with you is because you're doing some really fascinating work about, I guess, the history of the Communist Party of Australia and its relationship to Indigenous struggles and then the kind of theoretical questions, I guess, of colonialism and its relationship to Marxism, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's sort of where my head's been for, for quite a while, you know, do it like doing a lot of activism over the last 10 years i mean we're talking today it's the 21st of june i don't know if that gives too much away about your you know sort of editing schedule and when things go to air no, that's fine we're talking on the we're talking on the anniversary of the northern territory intervention and that was when i first started getting really involved in black rights organizing activism like yeah. i was a member of solidarity and we went in pretty hard um, as an organisation to take up that issue and join the sort of protest movement that was starting up around the country. And I haven't really stopped since then, that being my main sort of area of activity, I guess you'd say, or where I'm most active in campaigns. So it's something I've thought about a lot, being a socialist, you know, in in the struggle, I guess, for Aboriginal rights. And um, yeah, the history has been really fascinating, looking at some of that history of how socialists have related to Indigenous struggle in Australia and that's taken me a bit more deeply actually into some of the history of 
Marxist thought and, you know, the sort of the history, yeah, the history of the way socialists have conceptualised uh, Indigenous people and Indigenous struggle. So, yep, as I said, that's where my head's been for quite a while and right into it, of course, since this PhD started about three or four years ago. Now, we've got some international listeners who might not be familiar with the Northern Territory intervention. Could you give us a quick summary about, you know, what it is and where it fits in, I guess, kind of the the history of of colonisation in Australia? Well, I mean, the intervention was the parting shot, I guess you'd say, by the Howard government, uh, who were in power from 1996 in Australia, a Liberal, uh, very conservative government, who were had a very explicit anti-Aboriginal agenda from day one. Um, You know, they sort of came in, slashed enormous amounts of funding out of black community organisations, you know, tried to attack the very limited uh, land rights or it's not even really land rights. The native title sort of system that exists in this country was very heavily attacked by the Howard government. So there was a series of attacks over the course of their government and then the cherry on top really was the Northern Territory intervention just before they lost power, where they went in very, very hard um, and stripped back a whole lot of rights that Indigenous people had won uh, through struggle over many years and really re-implemented, I guess you'd say, in a lot of ways, forms of control over Aboriginal people, their land, their communities uh, that that are very, very similar to the explicitly racist powers that government agencies have had previously in Australian history when, you know, Indigenous people weren't formally citizens of the country, weren't weren't considered to have the same formal citizenship rights as other people. So we've gone in many ways back to that era. I mean, there's a whole lot of obviously new things about the Northern Territory intervention. It's not, you know, a pure, you know, recreation of the past in any way. It's, there's a hard neoliberal edge to the intervention. You know, it's very much a creature of the contemporary era but the powers they've got are exactly in many ways you know what protectors of aborigines or the aborigines welfare board and other um government agencies like this had you know controlling people's money controlling their movement in many ways certainly controlling their land um and denying i guess what you'd say are considered sort of basic citizenship rights i mean two uh, very blatant ones are the right to purchase alcohol and pornography so you know two things you can do when you're 18 in australia when you turn 18 you can buy grog and porn you can't do that if you're black in the northern territory living under the intervention and the police have got a whole series of powers um to enter people's houses or vehicles without a warrant um on the pretext that there may be alcohol in the premises um so yeah it's that's just mind-blowing isn't it that's just mind-blowing isn't it like like it every, is. every time every time you hear that it's shocking again. It is. It, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I think one of the things I guess that does make it sh- so shocking uh, potentially. I mean, especially on days like today, where it's sort of like the anniversary today, and usually in previous years the protest movement has been stronger, and we've had demonstrations and things like this. That a lot of that's fallen away, but is the extent to which it's also just not discussed. You know, it's not discussed at all. So people are living under this explicitly racist legislative regime. Like, they don't even pretend it's not racist. They suspended the Racial Discrimination Act to implement the policy, um, which explicitly denies people rights by virtue of their 
Aboriginality and it's had horrific social consequences. I mean, you could rattle off, you know, books and full of the, you know, sort of things that have happened, terrible social outcomes for communities that have come through this whole process, but it's just something that's not discussed. It is, it is quite remarkable. Yeah, I mean, back in like this research I've been doing, kind of in a more contemporary period than you, than you, Patty. I mean, looking at you know, it is very much you know those rights to enter houses, the right to go in without a warrant, the right to go through people's stuff, the right basically for you to exist in like some sort of state of bare life as an Aboriginal person, mm. um, when you have no rights at all. It's very much what those acts did. But when people raised attention. At that time, particularly if it got international attention, it was something that was really shameful for the Australian government. And they really went out of their way to ensure that those sorts of things weren't talked about internationally because they were really worried about it. And they were really worried about the power of the anti-colonial UN, um, you know, and, and the amount of new states who were entering the UN at that point and, and, and the balance of power in the world that just they don't seem to be as concerned about anymore. Yeah. Yep, I think that's right. The balance of power in the world, absolutely, and and the balance of you know balance of power here too. Obviously related, very closely related. But yeah, that, that when they're fighting off a sort of rising movement, if you like, through the mid '60s, later '60s, and especially the 1970s, yeah, yeah they're they're on the, they're they're on the back foot politically, and that's certainly not the case today. Yeah. You know, John and I have even talked, you know. In a shorter historical space, about how much we've seen things like, like transform in our lives, where whatever the critiques you would have of the Hawke Keating government, and you know we have plenty, they had like a neoliberal plan which they imagined would have some kind of uh, justice for Indigenous people or at least representation in forms of like organisations like ATSIC and limited forms of land rights. Like we don't even have like we don't even like we've gone back from that vision, right? And like John and I were having a chat like just the other day when we were at the park with the kids that not even the Labor Party really defends that kind of limited but progressive element of the Hawke Keating years. Mm, yeah, no, that's de oh, absolutely true of the Labor government, you know, that took over from Howard um, and that, you know, they just took on the Northern Territory intervention as their own policy. I mean, they voted for it, but... And, and the one of the biggest things, as well as the material impact on people's lives, is, you know, this war a history war, if you like, that sort of waged through the implementation of a policy like this in terms of challenging uh, that whole idea that Aboriginal people should be entitled to self-determination, you know, that, that the, the problems that exist in Aboriginal communities are a result of a history of oppression, you know, all of that which was explicitly said by, you know, explicitly said by Keating, as you said, there's a whole lot of problems with, with Keating's, what, what, what they actually did, but I agree with you, there was at least a a reformist, if you like, sort of rhetoric about there's an oppression here we need to deal with. It flipped around entirely and self-determination itself was blamed for the problems. So the, you know, the terrible health situation, you know, chronic, you know, chronic diseases, chronic, you know, alcohol problems amongst a small minority, but a very serious problem, you know, things like this are just blamed on, on, on self-determination. As, uh, and land rights that is somehow is, that was the sort of narrative of the intervention i think it's starting to see labor starting to see labor break with that a little bit but it's it's pretty mickey mouse even compared to keating and that's saying something 
Yeah, it's it's kind of mind blowing to think that, right? Like you know, like I remember the critiques of um, Keating and and Hawk back in the day, and the the limited forms of native title. But that looks so much more advanced than what currently is on offer by by the Australian state. Oh, all right, but l- let's jump back. <laughs> I was looking at some. I was I was looking at some of your work today, Paddy, and I guess like my kind of understanding is that you're trying you're looking at when the Communist Party is the most radical part of the Australian labour movement began to address Indigenous struggle, but also like why what limited it ideologically from doing that as well. Can you tell us a little bit about like the history of you know the labor movement and the socialist movement in Australia and how it thought about indigenous struggles? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's right. That's certainly what I've been doing is sort of going going to try to understand when you know when this when when it was recognised that there was a struggle, that there was an actual fight going on, you know, for, for Aboriginal rights and that that deserves support and needed support. Like, when did that start to happen? Because, um, like, the Communist International uh, uh, that came out of the Russian Revolution uh, after the First World War and, you know, the Russian Revolution in 1917-18, they established this Communist International uh, where um, you have communist parties forming all around the world, including in Australia. And one of the main um, tenets, I guess you'd say, of the of the new international communist movement was anti-colonialism and anti-racism. Um, and the Communist Party in Australia did in fact, uh, I mean, you could critique all the ways they did it and the extent to which they did it, but they did explicitly challenge uh, the racism that was hegemonic in the labour movement, the the white Australia policy that was supported by the labour movement um, was sort of mercilessly critiqued as as this barrier to the development of a working class movement in Australia. Um, so they fought, you know, for, for people to be able to join unions that weren't white. They fought against the idea that non-white people would be responsible for driving down wages, all these sorts of things. But they also supported national liberation struggles. So they, you know, their newspapers would be full of news about the Indian Revolution and the movement in Malaya and the movement in Indonesia and, you know, the Irish Rebellion and the Chinese Revolution was a massive concern of the party in the mid-1920s. So they they were anti-colonial in, in line with the Comintern's, um, in line with the Comintern's position. Uh, but what I guess was surprising, uh, going to try and look um, to, to understand the history of ideas about Indigenous people, was that they were completely silent on um, what's of obviously a form of colonialism, a blatant form of colonialism, and the, that's the way that Indigenous people are ruled in Australia and, you know, the, the ongoing, what was then a very, there were still massacres going on in Australia in the 1920s. There was still a very explicit imperialist expansion, if you like, across the continent and confrontations, armed confrontations with, with Indigenous people, massacres, but then extreme uh, regimes of racist control over Indigenous people who had survived those uh, those massacres. So this, you'd think, would be something that the party would talk about, but they just didn't. 
and that's what I that's what I found. And so, what I thought was going to be a thesis which sort of talked about the history of the relationship of the party to Indigenous struggle uh, became far more. Um, you know, in the opening sort of phase anyway, looking at the 1920s, it became far more trying to understand, well, well, why didn't they talk about Indigenous people and why didn't they care about what was going on? Why didn't they try and take it up, you know? And, um, and I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of <laughs> reasons for that we could go on to, to explore, but I guess... I, I did, you know, one of the main things that you came up against was the fact that a lot of the very racist ideas about Aboriginal people, that they were just so backward, they were backward people, you know, uh, that, that they would die out because they were just so backward. That was hegemonic in society. That was the mainstream idea. And that was also hegemonic in the labour movement and accepted by the Communist Party. So the few few places in the 1920s where they might carry newspaper articles about the odd atrocity that was going on, very few and far between. Like we're talking about maybe three mentions or four mentions in the party newspaper over the course of a whole year. It would often be in the context of describing people as dying out, like the last of the blacks or whatever, that sort of a, that sort of a philosophy. So that was, that was how Indigenous people were seen. It it doesn't really matter. They're finished anyway. They're inferior anyway. And and um, I came to understand as well that those ideas had quite a strong, uh, was quite strongly rooted actually in in Marxism really in quite a lot of the of the work of 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 particularly Engels, uh, but also of of Marx. So you know I was just trying to explore some of that. But yeah, that was the sort of the opening sort of phase of the research was going looking for. You know, how did people who were anti-racist and anti-colonial relate to Indigenous people? Well, they just didn't, <laughs> is the answer for the sort of the, the opening part of the Communist Party in the 1920s anyway. Yeah. Do you, how much do you think this um, has to do, like, to the specific history of Australia and how much was it kind of a product of the broader dynamics of the international uh, labour movement and socialist movements? Um, I, I think, I mean, I think it, it, there are, there are real particularities about Australia and I think there's, you know, if you're going to take on a dominant ideology, um, then you need some tools to do it, you know, like, and they, it, and Marxism had provided plenty of that, uh, in relation to other, um, forms of colonial rule. Uh, there were long and rich histories actually within the Marxist tradition of, of relating to, mass anti-colonial struggles that are led by sort of often bourgeois, you know, forces within the colonised people leading these sort of mass struggles for national liberation. There was a lot, long history of relating to that and, and there just wasn't a history of relating to the smaller scale, I guess you'd say, uh, struggles that, that sort of took place um, on the part of Indigenous people in the settler colonies. Uh, and, and there's the his, there's the strength of anti-Aboriginal ideology within the Australian context, I think is, you know, you can't discount. Um, it certainly had an impact on how they related to the white Australia policy. I mean, I mentioned opposition to the white Australia policy before, but I know John's done some work on this as well. That was, that was limited as well um, because of the strength of the white Australia idea within the labour movement. It was a very isolated position to be against the white Australia policy and that did have an impact uh, so so yeah the strength of the racism in Australia I think has got a lot to do with it uh, but 
I, through the course of the research, I come to understood a lot more that actually in terms of some of the formative period of the development of, of socialist ideology in the 1850s and 1860s and this, the, you know, this is the period when Marx is really coming on in terms of the developing uh, the concepts that will be taken up by the labour movement. And obviously he's not working in isolation. He's reflecting in many ways a lot of the ideological debates and stuff that are happening within the movement in his writings. Um, at that point in time, the American, the North American labour movement was a very important part of the international labour movement. And um, there was a very, very strong support within the the American labour movement, the same is true in Australia, but not not to the same extent. In the in the American labour movement, the North, in North America, the United States, uh, there was a very strong support for the idea of workers going to the frontier and taking up land, and that they should have a right to do that. And that and that one of the main things that the labour movement in the United States would do would fight the federal government to release land on the frontier for workers to settle on. So I also think that that does have a lot to do with it, that workers in the workers' movement, in this period of the development of sort of socialism as an ideology, actually had a stake, had quite a material stake. I mean, you could, you could debate whether it was actually in the interests of those workers or not, you know, ultimately, but certainly in quite a, in an immediate sort of sense, there was this stake in colonisation of Indigenous land, uh, what was considered to be um, public land. But, I mean, it it wasn't public land. It was, you know, held by Indigenous people and often they had treaties with the federal government, you know, that prohibited colonisation by settlers and and the lobbying of the labour movement was basically saying, break the treaty and give us the land, you know. So so that in itself, I think, uh, certainly in the work of Marx and Engels, was a very strong theme. There was a big debate uh, within the German communist movement that they were a part of about how to relate to the American labour movement. And everyone, including Marx and Engels, said we need to support the demands of the the national reformers and other groups who are demanding land on the frontier. So I do think that that also uh, can't be discounted as a as an actual influence on, um, yeah, or, or something which which held back, if you like. Uh, you know, a, a critique of the dispossession that was going on and, and a solidarity with the Indigenous people, yeah. This was to demand land to kind of escape the condition of proletarianisation. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, Marx and Engels were saying basically that through the whole 1840s, 1850s and even 1860s, it's this, it's a safety valve. They used the word of the safety valve, you know, that this is a way to re- relieve the tensions uh, within American capitalism and within European capitalism, actually, is for proletarian people trying to escape their condition, going to the frontier and taking up land. And this is actually given as the main reason, Marx and Engels give this as the main reason, why why you don't have the development um, in the United States of a sort of a trade union movement uh, with the same strength and importance and that sort of thing as you had in Britain and on the continent, was because you hadn't had that clear, clear class polarisation in the same way because of the existence of this safety valve, that people would be forever running to the frontier as a way to get away from the condition of proletarianisation rather than organising and fighting as a worker in their workplace or community or whatever it might be. 
yeah. That's really fascinating because, you know, I normally understand kind of, you know, Marx as someone who wanted to kind of like push the contradictions of capital so they would explode, while this is like almost like a different approach. Yeah, so, so like I think that, that's, that's often quite different than how I see like Marx's understandings about the development of capitalism. You know, a lot of his work is often um, aimed <coughs> at people who want to ameliorate the conditions of capital and say you can't. But it's I've never heard that kind of impact of the US debates, which I've never really thought about before. So that's, that's really fascinating. Um, mm. I mean, it's not to say that he didn't have a critique of the mm. movement he did. Like actually the, the final chapter of Capital, I would argue, is precisely that. It's an argument with the American labor movement that they can't escape. Right, so so he, you know, he, he says, yeah, you know, this is a safety valve, and you know, people are running away from, you know, um, proletarianisation, and they're getting away with it for now. Mm. But this can't last forever. It won't last forever. It's already, he says explicitly in the chapter. This is obviously writing later in the eighteen sixties when it's published. He says already we're seeing that the safety valve is losing its, you know potency or whatever and you're getting these worker struggles breaking out in the united states you can't escape you have to fight and overthrow the state like that, I- that is actually his argument but 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 in the but to make that argument he says we need to be part of the movement you know we, we support the demands of the movement whilst arguing you know, this won't get us out of the problems of capitalism. Which I guess is his kind of argument with the European labour movement as well about, you know, you support the fight for wages and the reduction of the working day, but you understand there's yep. kind of inherent conditions to the drive of capital that you can't escape. Like, it, it's mm. it's like the depth of this problem, I think, is really quite amazing. I'm not sure if you saw it, but uh, do you ever read the, um, the very flash journal Salvage at all? Occasionally, yeah, I'll have a look at an article or two. They had, they had an article, I can't remember um, which issue it was in, where it was talking about people who had fought in the Paris Commune, who were then imprisoned in one of the French colonies in the Pacific. So, New Caledonia. Yeah, New Caledonia, who, when the mm. Indigenous people rebelled, they fought, the most of them, except for a couple of anarchists like Verlaine, were recruited in fighting for the French state against the Indigenous mm. Rebellion, which, like, I think is just, like, a, a really brutally sad but kind of fascinating insight. Here were, you know, people who had attempted to overthrow the French state and capitalism, but when it comes mm. to the question of colonisation and the struggles of Indigenous people found, put themselves on the same side as the French state. Absolutely. I mean, th- this was happening during the Paris Commune. Like, during the Paris Commune, there was an uprising of Indigenous people in Algeria. And, and, and actually, one of the main things that allowed for the uh, French state to put down the uprising um, was, was the fact that they, they defeated the Commune. And then, and you know, and mobilised to to put down the and mobilised to put down the uprising. It might have even been vice versa, David. It'd be worth worth going and having a look. But the interesting thing that happened at that time was there were communards, French communards in Algeria, who were also rising against the the French regime in Algeria. But they were calling for a settler republic along the lines of the United States, with full clearance of all Indigenous people from the land. Total genocide. 
Like that was their actual vision was, you know, a commune established like by clearing the indigenous people out of the way. So, you know, that it, it was, uh, and, and they, and they looked to the United States and used the example of the United States to make those calls. So it, it really did, I think, you know, in a, in a very, very real way, both, both in America, actually, I mean, there's, it's there's interesting stories about troops being redeployed, United States troops being redeployed from the battle with the Sioux on the frontier to go and smash the railway strike. You had quite a similar thing happening with the relationship between Algeria and Algeria and France. Yeah. But this is at the same time that a language of internationalism is emerging as well, right? Mm, mm, yep. Yep. Wow. Look, look, maybe as, as a way to kind of address this, you also look at when the Communist Party changes and begins to relate mm. to Indigenous struggles. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so th- this is what is interesting, because in most of the history, in most of the history um, uh, that's been written about this, uh, it's generally assumed by the historians that the reason why Indigenous issues are taken up in Australia in the late 1920s and early 1930s, or pe- most of the people don't know about the late 1920s, but certainly in 1931, you have a program published uh, by the Communist Party, which is awesome, in my opinion. It's actually what inspired me to do the thesis, like... It calls, you know, it calls what's going on genocide. It says you've got, you know, you've got genocide going on with, you know, massacre parties, but you've also got genocide going on here in New South Wales. It's written out of Sydney and they say, you know, here in New South Wales, there's also a genocide. They don't use the word genocide, but they say extermination of the race uh, through forced separation of family. So they say that the child removal policies that are going on are about trying to destroy Indigenous people as a people, uh, you know. So they say that that's what's going on, that's what's at stake, and that um, it's a disgrace that the working class movement in Australia hasn't taken this issue up previously. But from now on, we have to. And um, they they say unite with the you know Aboriginal people, unite with the Aborigines against Australian imperialism. It's described as this is Australian imperialism trying to exterminate the Indigenous people. So they call for the abolition of all the protection boards, you know, full civil rights for everyone, but also rights to land, rights to their language, uh, to have uh, Aboriginal control, you know, over over communities. And in the north of Australia, they say the north and west of Australia, there should be independent Aboriginal republics. You know, so this is sort of riffing on this theme that the common turn had at the time with uh, calling also for you know, a black republic in the United States and other things. But, is this, so that wasn't is this as, the black belt thesis? Yeah, Let's that's see. the black belt thesis in the States, yeah. So, that I mean, that part of it, I mean, there's a whole discussion about that, about, like, this, you know, Stalinization of the Comintern and what the black belt thesis meant, where it came from. And it's a bit of an add-on to this program. The, the bulk of the program is, I mean, you could, you could have the same demands today. You know, it's 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 a very very far-sighted uh, analysis of of why indigenous oppression is happening, but also you know the demands that 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 are needed to be raised to fight the system. Um, that really, you know, it's a lot of the historians say you don't see anything this radical again until the late nineteen sixties, um, and this was in nineteen thirty one that it was written. So that's what got me going to look, you know, where did this come from, what happened? And most of the historians say this is the this is the common turn directing the Australian party to take up Indigenous issues. But 
I can't find any evidence for that at all. Like there's no correspondence from the Comintern which makes such a direction. There's a few little bits of discussion at the Comintern meetings in the late 1920s where they mention Aboriginal people but they dismiss their importance uh, in the Australian context. So so that's not right. The direction didn't come from outside Australia. Um, that emerged here. Uh, those demands emerged here and the analysis emerged here. And I argue that it emerged actually from the struggles of the unemployed workers movement um, when you had, uh, you know, like a rising sort of movement of itinerant white workers in Australia who are living in very isolated social conditions, uh, you know, living in fringe camps, being moved on by the police, being attacked by the police in their, in their camps and living often with Indigenous people. You know, on the fringes of the of the of the towns and the um and the cities, um, here in Sydney there was a camp near La Perouse, which is an Aboriginal reserve for a long time in in Sydney. Uh, there was fringe camps there of black and white all mixing and living together, and so it was sort of out of this experience of the unemployed workers movement that you had Indigenous people in the movement are uh, starting to make an argument to other people in the movement about their particular oppression. Uh, like, for example, they were paid half the dole that white people were paid. Uh, for example, you know, that's just one example. But they were raising these sorts of things. And that's basically my argument was that particularly in Darwin, there was a Communist Party branch that formed in Darwin. And the, the question of black rights in Darwin was very starkly posed uh, because there was a racist North Australian workers' union that excluded blacks from the union and actually had a campaign going to kick black people out of all the jobs that they were in in Darwin. That was like the campaign of the North Australian workers' union at the time. So the communists came in and said, no, we can't have a colour bar. We have to, in some ways, like the same argument they make about migrant workers, you know, we have to unite and fight black and white together. So that was a sort of the start of the cooperation but all around Australia, you had growing cooperation in this unemployed workers movement that I think then sort of found expression in, you know, some, not very many, like it's it not like this program was taken up and the Communist Party suddenly became like the vanguard of Indigenous struggle or anything. Um, but you had a recognition from some of the leaders in the party. This is an issue. They researched the issue, listened to some of the black activists and produced this, produced this program. Yeah. And predating this, there was Indigenous political self-organisation happening as well. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. And that was very influential for the actual content of the program. Like you actually have, you know, the demands of the, you know, the Aboriginal movement in New South Wales, uh, self-organised Aboriginal movement in New South Wales. Uh, a lot of the demands from that movement were taken up by the Communist Party in this program. So by the time the Communist Party actually write their program, um, unfortunately, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, the AAPA, um, which was a very formidable uh, organisation here in New South Wales, had been smashed by 1931. And, and the program actually says that the labour movement had disgracefully allowed uh, the rank-and-file movement of the Aborigines, which is a reference to the AAPA, to be smashed up by the missionaries and the police. So um, what, what's, the, what's this story? Who's the AAPA and what had happened? So the AAPA formed in the mid-1920s um, and it was led 
it's a it's a really fascinating story. It was led by um, Aboriginal proletarians, if you like, work workers in the cities who were black, um, who had connections back to their reserve. You know, so they were finally, you know, keenly aware of the sort of life under the protection board and what that looked like. But they themselves had got away from that life in, for some reason. There were some black people who managed to live and work um, in the late 1920s in cities like Sydney and Newcastle, uh, where some of the leadership was based. And one of the main guys who started it, Fred Maynard, he was a wharfie. He uh, had worked for years from 1912, actually, on the waterfront in Sydney. And through the waterfront, he had met black sailors from the Caribbean and the United States who carried with them the literature of the Garvey movement, of Marcus Garvey's movement, the black pride, black power movement and black nationalist movement um, in the United States and the Caribbean. And and so had, he and his comrades had been exposed to this literature. Uh, they'd actually formed a branch of Garvey's organisation in Sydney. Really? For all coloured people. Yeah, in Sydney. In the That's early amazing. 20s. I know, it's incredible. <laughs> so from, from the waterfront, from the connections with the sailors, they established this progressive, you know, a, a Garveyist organisation in Sydney. And then... They write, they correspond with the paper. There's articles by, you know, Aboriginal people from Australia in Marcus Garvey's press in the United States in the early 1920s. Um, and they, um, and but they then uh, come to focus on their struggle as a people and, and they form, yeah, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association. And as I said, it's a very formidable organisation. Like when they held their second conference in Kempsey. Um, <laughs> That's coast, amazing. Um, yeah, they have this conference in Kempsey of 500 Aboriginal people in 1925. That's incredible. And in 1925, in 1925 in New South Wales, the Protection Board is saying that there's only 6,000 Aborigines in New South Wales. And they've got 500 at a conference in Kempsey uh, demanding an end to the revocation of reserve land that was going on. The government was pinching, you know, land that had been fought for and won back um, in previous generations uh, that was being confiscated by the government in the 1920s, trying to disperse people off reserves and force assimilation. So they were demanding an end to the revocation of the reserve land and end to the protection board in its entirety. They demanded for the abolition of the protection board. They wanted self-determination. There was Aboriginal languages spoken at the conference to open the conference and, you know, show their sort of pride and, uh, you know, as a people. And there's some really profound things uh, said about uh, by Maynard. There's this great letter that he wrote to Jack Lang, who was a Labor Party premier in New South Wales in the late 1920s, where he basically says, you know, the labor movement in Australia, the trade union leaders, you know, are going on about these conditions they want. Well, that's what we had here before the British came. You know, we never called any men master. We had no king. We only worked when necessary. You know, you want what we had, <laughs> you know, was his was his argument to, to Lang. We're not inferior at all. You keep calling us inferior, but we're not inferior at all. Our divorce laws were superior to yours. You know, you might you might allow divorce soon, but we always, you know, we never forced people to marry. You know, so it was, um, you know, this real sort of pride, Aboriginal pride in, in the philosophy, but uh, quite strident demands against the government. But 
and this is what I went looking for in my thesis was, well, here's, here's this union guy heading up this major Aboriginal organisation. What were the unions saying? What were they doing to support him? And, yeah, again, sadly, the, the answer is nothing at all. So that, that's what I think is one of the real ironies of the position that the Communist Party had in the mid-1920s, which was the Aboriginal people are just dying out, is actually they were organising what was probably one of the most profound social movements in the state, but the Communist Party was just ignoring it. Yeah. But by the time... So they what, were smashed, yeah. But, but how... What, yeah, actually, let's, let's hear about that. How were they smashed? they weren't allowed on the reserves so you know they'd go to try and you know get onto the reserves to meet with people about their conditions and they'd just be stopped by police arrested by police uh the the police would grab their kids you know threaten their kids tell them if they kept going they'd take their kids off them just drove them underground just persecuted persecuted them so hard that yeah they weren't able to maintain the same level of of organization yeah so common and that, and common tactics then throughout the history of the Australian state. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So so Maynard Maynard is still around all through the 1930s. He's on the waterfront. I mean, I went looking through all the Waterside Workers Federation um, archives trying to find this guy, and he's there. You know, he's there on the membership books, but he's not in the minutes. He's not you know being invited to the meetings to talk about you know, his struggles or, or anything like that. Yeah. So Moxon writes this new program for the, the CPA. What do, do they just write a program and forget about it or is there actually an orientation that the Communist Party then has to this in, these Indigenous struggles? In a general sense, there is an orientation, but in, in a sort of like immediate, like do they then move into like actually agitating around the issue or whatever, like, no, they don't. But in a general sense, there's actually a shift in the way the party looks at and writes about Aboriginal issues. They, they have a commitment, I guess you'd say, a formal commitment as an organisation to try and cover black issues. So you have a lot more coverage in the newspaper of the various outrages that are happening, you know, around the country. Um, and and there's an explicit attempt to theorise you know, what's actually going on. So the there's a, an organisation that's called the League Against Imperialism, which was like the campaign organisation, if you like, that the Communist Party had set up to try and intersect with the broader labour movement and call rallies and public meetings and conferences against war. And they had this analysis that one of their main tasks was to fight against Australian imperialism, you know, because they're in Australia and that's what you do. And so... Part of their responsibility should be struggling for the freedom of New Guinea, which was an Australian colony, and the freedom of Aboriginal people in Australia. So they sort of raise it consistently in a programmatic sense. You know, it's on the agenda for the resolution at the end of the anti-war conference or whatever it might be. But the guy who writes the program, for various reasons, I don't think it's because he wrote the program, but for various reasons, the guy who wrote the program is actually driven out of the leadership of the party and disappears in early 1932. And there's no one else in the leadership that really, I think, had the connections that he must have had to write. Not wasn't just the program. He wrote a whole series of articles over a couple of months that show that he obviously was talking to 
Aboriginal activists, um, you know, about their experiences. And and he's hounded out of the party. And you, you do get the odd resolution from the unemployed workers' organisations and stuff like that that I discussed, calling for equality and dole payments. Um, but you don't get a struggle. Like the first campaign uh, comes in 1933, and we could talk about that a bit if you want, but that's about, that's about two years after they published the program. Uh, they have this general sort of orientation, and then 1933, they actually mobilise, if you like. Um, yeah, let's hear about that. Sounds yeah, so that, yeah, that's the that's the chapter I'm writing at the moment. It's really, it is, it's really interesting because basically what I argue is this is the this is a campaign in 1933 that was against an attempt at a massacre. So there was a policeman killed in Arnhem Land by a senior Aboriginal leader, actually, in the community uh, where the copper was, you know, hunting around. Um, the reason the police officer was there was because some Japanese fishermen, Tripang fishermen, had been killed there, um, basically for encroaching onto, they weren't wanted on Aboriginal land, and there's allegations about rape and other things that the um, Japanese were doing, but they were killed um, on Aboriginal land. So this policeman goes out, He's killed, um, and he chained up a couple of women actually, and was demanding, um, demanding that they take they take him to whoever the killer of the Japanese had been. You know, so this one guy spears this copper and kills him. Uh, Dakaya is the name of the man who who killed him, and he was a senior man in the in the area. And it, the general pattern in Australian history went into action to be repeated again, and all of the pastoralists and other people in the area called for blood in Darwin, the public meetings and stuff calling for blood. And the NT administrator says, we will send a, a punitive raid to teach the natives a lesson. You know, this is what they do. They send people off to massacre people and teach them a lesson. For So this is for in 1933? 1933. So the NT administrator, Weddle, he says... We're going to raise a posse, you know, we're going to have 12 black trackers and we're going to have 12 um, uh, police officers, but also citizens that will be deputised for the purpose of the party. They write to the Interior Minister in Canberra, because the NT is under Commonwealth administration, requesting guns and ammunition for the purposes of the massacre. The The guns and ammunition are sent uh, by the Defence Department, actually sends guns and ammunition to Darwin for the purposes of this of this raid. Um, but there was a communist in Darwin at the time who was very pro-Aboriginal guy. His name was Charles Priest, and he'd spent some time working in a remote uh, community and had also had quite a lot of experience in the unemployed workers' movement. And he was the editor of the unemployed workers' movement bulletin in Darwin at the time. And he really sort of raised the alarm, I guess you'd say, uh, sending telegrams and other things back down south to the Communist Party, but also to other supportive humanitarian organisations about the fact that this raid was going to happen. And at, at that point in time, there was quite a lot of support. Well, I wouldn't exactly call it support for Aboriginal people, but there was opposition to the massacre of Aboriginal people from bourgeois humanitarian organisations, I guess you'd say. You know, so people who, you know, part of the elite of society, but part of organisations like one in Sydney was called the Association for the Protection of Native Races and they want a more enlightened colonial policy, this sort of thing. So they'd been petitioning for many years about we need to stop these massacres. 
And they petition, well, we don't want this massacre to happen. But the Communist Party, this is the first time they actually take up and they mobilise. So they call public meetings. In Melbourne, there's a public meeting called by the Victorian um, Council Against War of 500 people um, against the punitive raid. Uh, there's, you know, some uh, similar meeting in Sydney and um a whole series of resolutions, you know, are passed through unemployed workers' organisations, trade unions, the New South Wales Labor Council, the Victorian Trades Hall, all those sorts of things, writing letters of protest to the minister to stop this punitive raid. And the humanitarian organisations do similar. Uh, but the Communist Party, it's really interesting because the resolutions that come from the Communist Party affiliated organisations that have been driven by communists in the unions they say stop the war on Aborigines. They say sending a punitive raid against these people is 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 an act of war. And they actually mobilise in the labour movement, tapping into quite a rich vein in the Australian labour movement tradition of opposing war. So they put it in terms of the mobilisation for the next world war that's going on. This is actually part of that, you know, the sending of troops to Darwin, sorry, guns to Darwin. And so no war on Aborigines. They have a right to kill the police officer. He was going into their land un, in, uninvited. So that's, it's like an anti-imperialist position. Whereas the humanitarian resolutions are saying like, oh, we've got to have a better way of dealing with the natives. You know, we should send some missionaries out to try and negotiate for the people who killed the Japanese and the police officer to be handed over to the police and leave it to us and, you know, that sort of a approach. So, yeah, anyway, the long and short of it is the raid's called off. There's no punitive raid. And that's actually the last public attempt at a massacre in Australian history. So, um, obviously, horrific violence continues um, in Australia, continues today against Aboriginal people in Australia. But this is the last time that a government authority announces we're going to send police out to commit a massacre to teach the blacks a lesson. And I think it's instructive that the first time in history that the labour movement mobilises for Aboriginal rights is also the last time that they think they can get away with a massacre. I think there's something in that. Yeah, so that's what I'm sort of writing up at the moment. Yeah, yeah that's, that's amazing. And does, does this represent a rise in solidarity between the labour movement, between the revolutionary elements of it and Indigenous struggle, or is it just a question of a few one-off encounters? Yeah, well, there are sort of two things. There's first the mobilisation to stop the massacre, then there's another mobilisation the following year to free the guy who's imprisoned in the end, Takaya, who speared him, he, he does end up being imprisoned because the missionaries get their way and they go out. and So that's a whole other story. So there's a couple of mobilisations around this sort of outrage in the Northern Territory. And it does, it lays the basis, I guess, for what's to come later in the 1930s. And William Cooper writes about this, actually, who's, you know, a very distinguished Indigenous leader and activist in that period in the 1930s. He sort of set up the um, Aboriginal Advancement League in Victoria and um, helped to organise the Day of Mourning, which is a very famous black protest in 1938. Cooper writes about the early 1930s as like a turning point. You know, this is when we really feel that there's a sentiment uh, in the broader Australian community uh, to support Aboriginal people. And the and the, um, the Australian Aborigines League actually start marching in, at, in May Day, um, as part of the May Day Parade, at the head of the May Day Parade, um, in some cases, uh, through the through the 1930s, um, and 
there is the growth, if you like, of of a of a culture that then continues um, all through the following decades. Actually, of yeah, solidarity in the unions and and the labour movement with Aboriginal issues. I mean, you can critique the quality of it, you can critique the scale of it. There's plenty to say about what was wrong uh, with the way a lot of people thought about Aboriginal people at the time, thought about what they were doing, but it is the case, and it's an important fact, uh, that from that point on, uh, the union movement does become a reservoir of support uh, for the for the Aboriginal movement that, that starts to grow in the 1930s in its own right. So you get the recovery of black self-organisation um, on the East Coast um, uh, through from the mid to late 1930s, and, and that does have important connections with the unions. Are there Indigenous people joining the Communist Party? No, there's not. Yeah, so there's people who are, you know, well, actually, I'll, I'll start that again. There are Indigenous people in the Communist Party in the early 1930s. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's often people who, I guess you'd say their Indigenous identity is not at the front of their political identity. Uh, at that time, in the early 30s. So, you know, they're black, but it's not really talked about that they're black. They're just comrades. They're just sort of in the party, um, which is a bit different from, like, the sort of Indigenous activists in the mid to late 1930s that really start organising on the basis of black rights and, you know, identify proudly as Indigenous and, and that's at the front of their political identity. No one from that sort of milieu uh, joins the Communist Party. There's certainly fellow... Travelers, you know, there's, you know, you go and read Pearl Gibbs' um, scrapbook, for example. Uh, Pearl Gibbs was a very famous uh, black activist here in in Sydney and New South Wales um, in this time in the 30s, and it's full of articles from the Workers Weekly, you know, that she's cut out and stuck in, and you know, so they're definitely there's definitely people that are around the party, um, but yeah, I mean. There are some real issues too, actually, by the late 1930s with the way that um, what's described as half-caste people, you know, like people, they're not the tribal full-bloods from the north, um, the way that they're sort of discussed by the Communist Party, particularly in Sydney, um, there's sort of like a quite hard line that comes from the leadership that we've actually got an argument with these people that they're not Indigenous, that they shouldn't identify as Aboriginal and um, that that's holding them back and they just need to see themselves as workers and just join the workers' struggle. Like the tribal people, yeah, they've got a, they've got a demand for self-determination we can support, but down here in the South, we shouldn't talk about – we should only talk about equality. We shouldn't talk about any specific Aboriginal rights. And I think that that basically made it impossible to recruit anyone uh, who was – who was a serious Aboriginal activist on the on the East Coast? Um, this really yeah, but I mean, this, that we could talk about that. But. This really mirrors like contemporary debates about race and class, right? Um, one of one of the things I, I am interested in, mainly because I'm constantly sharpening my hate of the Labor Party, was if you could like discuss how I guess the mainstream of the Labor movement and the ALP responded to the anti-racism of the Communist Party, as limited as it might be? Well, I mean, the Labor Party's running the protection board, you know, like, I mean, well, I mean, that's not exactly right. It's the New South Wales state that's running the protection board, but the Labor Party's in government in New South Wales through a lot of this period, 
um, not all of it, but certainly for a lot of it. So I've read the like the Labor Party newspaper um, and stuff like that. And from from the time, so say for example the the Labor Daily, which was Jack Lang's faction and his his uh, newspaper here in in Sydney. Um, they had quite an interesting perspective on the campaign to free Tuckaya in uh, 1934 and the earlier campaign against the punitive raid in 1933. Uh, their main concern was they were sort of attacking the missionaries as being hypocritical. They're saying, you know, look at these missionaries jumping up and down about Aboriginal rights. What about the workers, you know? Uh, the workers are actually more hard done by than the Aborigines. So, you know, they need to get their priorities straight. It was a sort of line of the, of the Labor Daily. Um, so... Yeah, from the sort of the leadership of the Labor Party, um, it does it you, you don't get much support at all. Um, but the left wing of the Labor Party does become an important source of support and uh, source of support, particularly in the later 1930s. Um, and you have cooperation between Aboriginal activists, Communist Party activists, and left Labor activists. Uh, in a few campaigns, actually, in the late 1930s, particularly the campaign in solidarity with the strikers of, on Kamragunja, uh, which was a New South Wales Protection Board reserve on the Murray River. Um, people crossed over the river into Victoria as part of a walk-off from that reserve in 1938-1939. And, um, and there's a big campaign of solidarity. Uh, and the Left Book Club, um, which was like a Communist Party initiative but had a lot of support from the left wing of the Labor Party, they had a, a huge meeting, about 800 people, 900 people um, in solidarity with that strike and collected a lot of money for the strike and this sort of thing. And in, and in terms of like Indigenous activists, there was a lot more of them in the Labor Party than there was in the Communist Party. So Bill Ferguson, who was the main organiser of the um, Aborigines Progressive Association in New South Wales in the late 1930s, he, his background is in the Labor Party. He helped establish the, the Largan Bone branch of the ALP <laughs> and, um, you know, was a union organiser with the AWU for many years and he sort of took his organising skills, I guess you'd say, that he got from the Labor movement uh, into, the, into the black movement. And he, he addressed a Labor Party conference, a National Labor Party conference in 1940 and successfully got a resolution through the National Labor Party Conference for full citizenship rights for Aboriginal people. Um, it was the last item on the agenda of a very long conference. <laughs> so, you know... And really maybe know in the context And they of, certainly didn't... Maybe also in the context of anti-fascism, right? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of black people joining the army. And, you know, we're all fighting for Australia and, you know, so give us our rights sort of thing was a big a big sort of part of it then too so so it's mixed you know like it's i mean it's like in a lot of things you've got you've got like the actual labor party in government the leadership of the labor party itself these sorts of things not very interested at all you know the main hegemonic ideas of australian capitalism repeated ad nauseum but the activist base of the labor party was a was a source of support um yeah yeah look, this is fascinating stuff patty like uh, and does it, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're interested in it because you can tell from me talking about it that I'm quite interested in it. <laughs> well, it, it is interesting and it's interesting for me like for a, a whole range of reasons. Um, like it's interesting, Justin, that the history is amazing and I'm, I'm, 
I feel I don't know what happened in the 70s or 80s where that I feel in many ways the thread of 20th century radical and labor history got really thin or a lot of those historical memories didn't keep on reproducing themselves so sometimes this seems like another world right um so yeah, yeah so that's like like I, I really you know and that's something I, I really wrestle I think is a present problem that actually in impacts how we struggle today is the recovery of the history of struggle of the 20th century because something mm. happened in the 80s the accord um where when other things more complicated you know where that didn't get reproduced but also it seems like profoundly relevant to very difficult discussions that people are having now about what the relationship is between indigenous people and non-indigenous people in the working class and how you theorize colonization like this seems to be touching on it like i assume that's what kind of drove you to do this historical project with those oh, problems absolutely. of the present yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's what you that's what you're doing you're thinking about it, those sorts of questions all the time trying to organize day to day and you know and that's also why that's also why I find it so interesting. And that's what I mean in terms of what you said before about recovery of historical memory. That's why I actually think it's really important, you know, like because it, it is important thing to face that, you know, there was the horrors of the massacres and the genocide in Australia, and most people didn't do anything about it. Most people actually supported it. Like that's all that's all true, you know. I think it's also important in that context to understand that actually you know, the massacres stopped because of a mass movement as well, you know, like that, that's important to understand um, that, you know, they, they, they didn't just stop because Australian capitalism suddenly become more enlightened and said, oh, we should stop killing Aboriginal people with massacre parties now, you know, they stopped because of a small section, but a section of the working class said, actually, <laughs> we can see that that is not in our interest. We actually think that the people who speared the copper we're on their side, you know, and and we're gonna try we're gonna try to we're gonna try to mobilise to to support them and stop them being massacred, like that. That too, I think, is 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 important. It's important to it's important to know that, and 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 to and to understand that you can change circumstances and how do you change circumstances and why and all those things. Yeah. Now you, we started the conversation. Um, talking about the limitations that um, Marxist thought and Marx and Engels themselves had in understanding colonisation in a way that allowed agency for Indigenous people and understood the complexities and dynamics of uh, pre-colonial Indigenous society. Today, today, like when, like most people around me, I, I think the, def, the, the most of the way that comrades in Australia currently think about Australia is through a lens of something called decolonisation. Um, it's not a term I use myself, and I, I think I'm, I try to be very respectful of comrades that have that analysis, and I try to understand what um, that they're saying. But I, I think it would be false if I just imported that over my analysis. And I was just wondering, like with it, like with that critique you have of of marx in capital is there something in that tradition that is useful in how we theorize how colonization and, col and colon coloniality operates within capitalism 
Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. See, that's what I think. There's the two things, like that, in terms of what I say in the in in my writing, is you've got sort of two schools of thought about the relationship between Marx and Indigenous people. You know, like on the one hand, it's like, oh, he was a horrible racist who, you know, was only cared about workers and 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 didn't care about colonialism, and so he's of no use to us. You know, and then you have another school of thought, which is like, well, actually, you need Marx to understand capitalism. There's some really powerful ideas in Marx. Actually, look, he references that there were, you know, Indians killed in the process of the primitive accumulation in the United States. So, you know, it is there in Marx. And what are you talking about? And and that sort of, you know, and that sort of thing. Whereas I sort of think, well, I'm very sympathetic to, you know, the idea that, you know, we need to actually understand that there were real limitations with the writing at the time, that there was an internalisation of the idea of manifest destiny in the United States, for example. It's dripping off Marx's pen, you know, that whole idea that the whole of the United States is just inevitably going to become, you know, this capitalist sort of power or whatever. I mean, that's that's true. But on the other hand, like, yeah, there's very, very powerful ideas as well that are in there that I think, you know, need to be need to be built on and need to be theorized and 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 you know and and central to that is, I think, um, the the process of primitive accumulation that lies at the at the foundation of the establishment of capitalist property relations. And that, you know, the, the to 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 create capitalism, uh, they had to annihilate uh, the collective forms of organisation and the way that they were relating to land, uh, they had to annihilate those forms in order to establish, you know, commodity, the commodity form and and um, and and how it operates within a territory. You know, they had they had to make land itself a commodity as part of the as part of the broader commodity system. And and I do I think that that's a very important insight for understanding why. Um, what's happened uh, in Australia happened. Um, but I also think uh, that if we're trying to imagine worlds where relationships to land aren't <laughs> dictated by the needs of the market, aren't don't take place through the commodity form and commodity relations, well, what do those relations look like? You know, And I think in the context of a settler colonial society, um, it's actually really important to know that the land that you're on and that you're relating to has a very, very, very long history and that's a social history and that that social history continues, that there are people who've had a relation with that land for a very long time, that have ideas, that have stories, that have a history with that land and if you want to relate to it um, – in a more human way, <laughs> I guess you might say, if you, I mean, you could critique that idea, but if you want to relate to it in a more human way, um, then you need, I think, to under, understand that history and respect that history. And so that that's the way I sort of think about it. I think it is very, very important, um, yeah, for breaking through uh, the sort of the veil that commodity society throws over us is to recognise the the history of, of how places became integrated into capitalism and and think about what alternative ways of relating to those places might look like. Yeah. That, that, that's, fast, that's fantastic. Since, since we both have um, a personal history where we've both spent time, different amount of times in IS groups, I, maybe we can finish by talking about what the implications are for today. 
what the implications are for today. Yeah, look, I do, the way I see it is it's like if we just I, – I always prioritise trying to when – when there are struggles on, you know, when there are fights on and they do break out reasonably regularly, you know, in terms of that they're Indigenous people – taking up demands, trying to mobilise, you know, around serious de- demands. I, I I think, and I think it's fairly uncontroversial, that those things should be supported by the left, um, that people should also mobilise, you know, in support of those struggles. And, and I think that there's a real primacy on trying to build support in the organised working class movement for those struggles. So that's very often what I try to do, is, is support the struggles on their own terms, but try to actually... Uh, build an understanding and support uh, where 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 I can, where we can, um, you know, within the within the workers' movement uh, because of the power that the workers' movement has, and you know, there's obviously a whole you know a whole theoretical tradition about why, but that's the you know that's that's I think a very important um, a very important practice. Um, I also think that um, I also think that. It's important actually in all struggles, you know, not at all times in some sort of religious way, but, you know, I'll just do an acknowledgement to country or something because it's the right thing to say, but try to look for a meaningful way that the Aboriginal struggles that are going on um, are related to uh, the other social struggles that people are participating in and try to find a way to make space and invitation and other things for, you know, Indigenous activists and Indigenous rights activists and stuff to participate in those broader struggles in a way that links them together. Like, I also think that that's quite important, you know. Like, I think it's very, very powerful, uh, Aboriginal solidarity with refugees, for example. I think it's very powerful. It cuts through a whole lot of crap that comes from the Australian state about, you know, these these are our borders and we decide who comes here in the circumstances in which they come, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like to be able to stand up and say, well, no, <laughs> you all came here illegally, if you like. You know, like, you know, this isn't this isn't your land to say people can't come and blah, blah, blah. I think that that's a very powerful statement, uh, statement of – and it's often very welcoming, very generous – um, sort of statements of solidarity by black activists with with refugee struggle when it happens, and and as well trying to break through this you know liberal idea, for example, in the refugee campaign that oh this isn't us, you know like oh what has Australia become that we have these detention centres, you know when the history of race and power and torture and prisons and you know that is Australia's history. Look at what happened to black people here. Look at what's happened to, you know, so so that too I think is is quite important. And that's just like I'm just giving one example of the refugee struggle, for example. I just think I think it is important to try to build those links, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we want a sober, clear analysis of the system we're actually up against, you know, and what it represents and what its history is, you know, and how we can build some power to fight against it. So so that too, I think, is quite an important thing to do: is to build that perspective into all your into all the struggles. Yeah, Paddy, Paddy I think that's been a really fantastic interview. Um, it's amazing work you're doing. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you would like us to talk um, to talk on before we wrap up in time for me to watch the Australia versus Denmark game? 
No, thanks for the time. We've been rabbiting on for quite a while. No, it's it's I've been look, very I, tolerant. Look, I, look, I think it's really, really interesting. I, I'm sure listeners will find it really, really interesting as well, because I think, like you know, one thing I like to put my own cards on the table. One thing that I think doesn't seem often really possible at the moment is the capacity for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to encounter each other in struggle in a way that threatens the coordinates of the society. Like, I think, mm. like, when you don't have large-scale social movements, the kind of rigid hierarchies of identity seem to be all that's possible. And I think that creates, like, a pretty dismal reading of what is possible. Um, so, like, to have hear this history and to, to see that, you know, there are these histories of... Um, where there have been these moments of real error and really racist error in terms of the labour movement, anti-capitalists, but encounters were possible that then launched a trajectory of contestation within a particular historical and period. I think it's really important for us mm. to, to think about so we can go, well, shit, are those possibilities alive today? Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, 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 think I think they are. I think, it, I think it's... Is there's no doubt at all that there's real difficulties, and a lot of them come out of the the level of oppression that black people in our society live under. Like it is extraordinary. I mean, I have you know, I do a lot of my work, a lot of my activism, a lot of things is in contact with you know Aboriginal activists, Aboriginal families that are dealing with you know the child protection system, the prison system, blah blah blah, and it just it's just unimaginable for most people, the level of persecution and poverty and everything that people are dealing with. And, you know, and that it, it makes, makes struggle really hard. You know, it, it does. There's no, there's no two ways about that. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's very difficult to fight back, um, you know, under, under that level of, 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 of sort of marginalization and oppression and, you know, all the, all the community dynamics that those things sort of create and, and that sort of thing. So that, you know, that's very real. I mean, I've got an, an incredible amount out of, um, yeah, the campaigns that I've participated in too and have seen, you know, really powerful moments of solidarity and, and, I do, and, I, and I really do think they're possible and I think they're very important to work towards. Um, yeah. But it, the, as you said, like, I think that that's, that is why I go to the history. You know, it's just, yeah, <laughs> it's just great. It's great to read. It's great to read. And, you, and you're reading it and you can sort of see what people are doing. Oh, this is going to come to grief. Oh, you did it anyway and it did. Oh, well. <laughs> I find that when always you, you uh, read... Uh, history of revolutionary struggles you always wish that there's going to be a different end coming from the one that you know will yeah, probably yeah. happen <laughs> you, you know? know what's going to happen is yeah, it going to break yeah. into an alternative reality you know um so patty if people have been listening to the show and i'm sure they find your stuff really interesting can they find your work anywhere um that's a good question not anywhere in particular oh i mean the solidarity magazine website solidarity.net.au yeah we'll link there's to that there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff on there like we've had really consistent coverage of black struggle over many years particularly the northern territory intervention like there's a lot of stuff there about the intervention um if you google my you know full name porrick gibson which is p-a-d-r-a-i-c p-a-d-r-a-i-c gibson you know, there's some longer, some journal articles and things I've written for Overland and well, if, some if other you, If you things. give us the links, I can stick them on the show notes. Yeah, I'll so, do that. Yeah, so people and go I straight like, to I them. like Facebook. Have a look at my Facebook. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Patty. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, this, is, this has been Living the Dream, and hopefully we can catch up again soon.
Thank you. Thanks, okay, Dan. see you, mate.